I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. We've taken a short break for Easter last week, but this week we are back at looking at a series on the vision of our church. And that vision is our desire to transform the town of Flower Mound with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a gospel that brings about personal transformation, community formation, social justice, and cultural renewal, not just in our suburbs, but we believe through the Metroplex and even to the ends of the world. And as we've been looking at these different values, you'll notice that over the last few weeks we have been focusing on community, the formation of community. And we have said that we, as God's people, are a community because we are centered on Jesus. It is because he saved us and because he made us his that we belong to one another as well. All because of what Jesus has done for us. So we are a community that is centered on Christ. And the last several of our sessions on community, we focus on the fact that we are responsible to equip our children for life in God's covenant community. So that they too will grow up and embrace Jesus for their own. So that they too can become part with us of that community. But the question that we have this morning is, what about those who are outside of the covenant? Those who are outside our community. What about those who as yet do not know Jesus? And that's where we come to one of the most important values of our church, and that is our valuing of mission, of doing outreach, of witnessing the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. So that's what we're going to be looking to today, and we'll be doing that using Psalm 96. Let's listen now to the Spirit as he speaks through the psalm. Psalm 96. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Ring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Thus far, the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to our hearing, especially as it is preached to us this morning. Well, people of God, as we talk about our vision, let me just come out and say it boldly, loud and proud, as they say, on the air as this is transmitted over the internet, that one of our goals as a church is to convert others to Christianity. One of the things to which we are committed as a church 
is to spread the gospel, to convert people to the Christian faith. And of course, you immediately know what some are thinking. How dare we do such a thing? Who are we to tell other people how they should live? Who are we to impose our values on others? It is precisely because of that kind of thinking that there has been such a precipitous decline in mission in the Western church over the last 50 years or so. Instead, the focus has become or has been focused on social gospel. And look, there's nothing wrong in and of itself with, the social, uh, with social justice. And in fact, we'll be talking later on in this series about how we are to understand social justice biblically, because it is a biblical concept. But for many of the churches in the last 50 years, social justice has been presented to the exclusion of the gospel. And in fact, social justice has become the gospel. And instead, we do not hear the good news of Christ. I remember when we began interacting with the mosque next door, reaching out to them some 16 years ago. And as I was talking to some of their leadership, they were like, oh yes, well that's great, we can have interactions just like we did with your Presbyterian brothers. And they were referring to the mainline Presbyterian church. And the man with whom I was speaking was very clear to say, yes, they constantly emphasize that we're all in the brotherhood of man and that we all follow the same God. They never heard the gospel from these others. And I let him know, actually, that's not what we're going to be doing. We're going to be talking about Jesus Christ. And we're going to be talking about who he is and what he's done and what his claims on all humanity are. You see, people, the reality is that the goal of mission is not to change a culture by imposing foreign values on them. That is a false statement. It's a false understanding. No, the goal of mission is to free people up to be themselves in the truest sense of the word. It is to remove the obstacles that keeps them from being what they were intended to be by God. Mission frees people up to be truly human. So we as a church are committed to evangelism, to outreach, to witness, to missions. And as we look at this passage, Psalm 96, we're going to see some very important things about missions. We're going to see three things. First, the motive for missions, the hope of missions, and the result of missions. So we're going to see the hope for missions, uh, rather the motive for missions, the hope of missions, and the result of missions. So let's start with the first of these points. What motivates us in mission? What is it that impels us to go out and witness and to share the gospel? Well, of course, at one level, we simply have Jesus' command to go do so. He gave it to us in the Great Commission in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, As he was ascending into heaven, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So we do have that bare command to go. Now, Jesus did not give us in that command the reason why we should go out. It's implied, but it's not made explicit. But here in Psalm 96, it is explicit. The reason why we are to go out and share the gospel. So let's look at the psalm and see if we can understand what the psalm is teaching us and what it's about. We'll be able to grab a hold of what is the motive for missions. If you'll notice, the psalm is broken up into two stanzas. 
Stanza one, starting with verse one. Stanza two, starting in verse seven. And as they follow through, they both have the same levels of repetition. So two stanzas, one and two, starting in verse one and verse seven. And when we look at verse one, we see this threefold sing to the Lord. Three times, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. What are we to sing? Sing to the Lord a new song. Who are we to sing it to? Sing to the Lord all the earth. What are we to be doing in that song? Sing to the Lord and bless his name, which is just another way of saying we worship. So in that threefold repetition, we are being told to invite all the world to join with us as we praise God in worship, as we sing. And why are we to do that? Verse 4 tells us why. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And so we see that the psalm starts by, in the first stanza, calling us to worship God because he is worthy of that praise. Notice in the second stanza, it parallels that. It also has a threefold, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. That second stanza then calls us to ascribe to the Lord what? The glory that is due his name. Each time it talks about his glory. It's a parallel to what we read back in verse 3 where it tells us to declare his glory. Now what do we mean by that word glory? What does that mean? We tend to think of the word glory as meaning something that is magnificent. And in regards to God, that certainly is true. But it's interesting, the word glory itself literally means weight. That which is heavy. That which is weighty. That which is meaty and has substance. When we speak about the glory of God, we're saying that his character, we're saying that his attributes are weighty. They are heavy, man. Okay, some of you from the 60s might have gotten that. So we read in, this, in verse 6 of his splendor, of his majesty, of his strength, of his beauty. In verse 9 of the splendor of his holiness. And these things have substance. They are weighty. And so when we are being called to ascribe to the Lord, to give him glory, to praise him, we are being called to revel in the character of God, to exult in who he is. But it's more than just worshiping God for who he is. It's also worshiping God for what he has done. At the very beginning, it calls us to sing to the Lord a new song. Now, by a new song, it doesn't simply mean a song that is just newly composed, but new in the sense that the content of the song is fresh. Something has changed. Things used to be this way, but now they're that way, and that gives us a reason to sing. You'll notice as you read through your Old Testament that again and again in the Psalms and in the prophets like Isaiah, every time it refers to a new song, it always refers to God coming and saving his people. It's always in the context of salvation. Things were this way before. We were stuck in Egypt and God came along and he delivered us. And so a new song has to be sung in Exodus 15. And we see the same thing in Isaiah and so on and so on. God delivers his people and because of that, there is joy and excitement at the coming of God. And that's why we're being told to tell all the nations that God is coming because something new is happening, something fresh, nothing stale. It's not the same old story. So when we understand that that is what Psalm 96 is calling us to do, to worship 
and to invite the nations to join us in worship because God is worthy for who he is and for what he's done. Then we can understand the key thing that I want you to pick up this morning. And that is that worship leads to evangelism. Worship leads to evangelism. You see that in both stanzas. They both begin by worshiping God and immediately moving to tell us to take that to the nations and to tell them to worship God too. Verse 2 tells us, or reads, tell of his salvation from day to day. So after saying, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, then it says, tell of his salvation from day to day. The word that is here, tell, is the word evangelize in Greek. It's the word in Hebrew that says, bear good news. We are to evangelize the nations, to tell them of what he's doing, tell them about his salvation. Not once or twice, but from day to day. We are to go out and do that. That's why we're called to, in verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Notice, declare his glory, who he is, his glorious attributes. Declare his marvelous works, what he's done. So you see it there in verse 3. Go out and tell who he is and what he's done. Invite the nations to join us. As verse 10 says, say among the the nations, the Lord reigns. So do you pick up the flow that that we we got here? It starts with us being Godward in our worship, then manward in our evangelism as we tell them about this great God and we invite them to join us as we again go Godward in our worship. That's the cycle. As we worship this great God, as we are gripped by his glory and by his goodness and his majesty and all that he has done for us, we want to tell other people about it. We turn to others and we bring them in so they can also join us in that for which we were made, which is to worship this triune God. That's what we see in this passage. Mission exists because there are people who do not yet worship God and we are inviting them to be gripped by the splendor of his holiness. That's the motive for missions. We want all peoples to join us in worshiping God. Now, I will be honest, not everybody gets all that excited when you summon them to worship God. Some people have a real problem with that and say, well, what's wrong with God? Why is he so desperate for our worship? Is God so vain? Back in 2003, Michael Prowse wrote an article in the London Financial Times. On the 30th of March, 2003, he said, Worship is an aspect of religion that I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants, puffed up with pride, crave adulation and homage. But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all those people on their knees every Sunday? What Michael Prowse is saying is, If God is morally perfect, he doesn't need to have people constantly telling him how great and wonderful he is. That's what humans do, as he says, human tyrants who are puffed up with pride. 
So why do we worship? He doesn't get it. The well-known pastor, Baptist uh, minister John Piper, responded uh, to Prowse, and he wrote, The only incentive that Prowse can think of for God to demand praise from us is that he, that is God, has a need, a defect. But what if we have the need? And the need is to see infinite beauty and to enjoy it so much that it spills over in authentic praise. What if admiration really is the highest pleasure and God is the most admirable being in the universe? If that were the case, wouldn't God's demand that we praise him be a demand for our maximum joy? And do we not call that love? John Piper is exactly correct. He's saying the need doesn't reside in God, the need resides in us. We have a need to see and to worship that which is the most beautiful and wondrous thing that there is, and that's God himself. And so the fact that we're being called to do so is for our good. You know, C.S. Lewis struggled with this exact same thing. He couldn't quite make out what was going on with all this praising until he made a great discovery. In his book, The Reflections on the Psalms, and he's looking at this psalm amongst others, he says, The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything else, strangely escaped me. I thought of praise in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised the most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. You see, he nails it right in the head. C.S. Lewis picks up on the fact that the reason that God seeks our praise is not because he won't be complete unless he receives it. No, God seeks our praise because we won't be complete until we give it. We will not be happy until we praise God, because God is our ultimate and highest good, the most beautiful, most wondrous, most glorious, most splendid thing. And so he becomes the object of our praise, and only then are we truly content. Psalm 147, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant. God is our highest good. 
So you see, people of God, when we help other peoples through our missionary efforts to join us in praising God, we do so because only then will they truly be happy. Only then will they truly be human in the fullest sense of the word. We're bringing them the truest and highest joy. Missions, then, is not arrogantly imposing our own values. Rather, it is an act of love because we're calling in missions people to do what they were created to do, which is to enjoy the making much of God. Isn't that what we have in our shorter catechism? Question one, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So many times we forget that last phrase. We are to glorify God and to worship him, but we're to enjoy him forever, and those two are not two separate things. As we glorify him, we have our chief and highest joy, and that for which we are made for can finally be fulfilled. So you see, people of God, if we do not take missions to other people, if we do not reach them with the gospel that has been revealed to us in Christ, not only will God be dishonored, but these people will be miserable forever because we've robbed them of the chief joy in life. So as we finally understand that, we can see what really motivates us. Yes, we're calling people to worship with us, but there's really two motives and missions which really are just one. That motive is the glory of God and the good of our fellow human beings. But they're really one because as we seek the glory of God, we are fulfilling our greatest need and we're doing the maximum good. Praising God is our highest good and it is the consummation of our pleasure in God. So that is why we call people That is the motive for missions, so that they can be fully human as we ask them and invite them to turn to worship God with us. Now, as we understand that motive, there's one very key thing in this passage that we have to grab a hold of, and that is what is the hope of missions? Second point, because you see, even as we see in missions that we're being called, or rather we are calling the nations to praise God with us, there is a problem when we do that. You can see that problem in verse 8. As we call the nations to join us, as we call the nations to ascribe glory to the Lord, we are told to bring an offering and come into his courts. We need to be able to bring an offering in order to enter into God's presence. He invites us to come so that we can worship him, that which is our greatest good. And yet because of our sinfulness, because of our rebellious hearts, we have to bring an offering to make amends. And the problem that we have is that none of us has sufficient merit to be able to bring an offering that will make us right before God. And it's a significant problem. For us, as the gospel comes to us and God calls us into his presence, what do we have to bring? And for the people, as we go out to them, it's not just telling them, come and worship God. Because as they stand in the presence of God, they have nothing to offer him that allows them to stand in his presence. In fact, we see at the end of the, uh, of the psalm again and again, God is coming, but he is coming to judge with righteousness. So what do we do? We are like Zechariah. You remember from Zechariah chapter 3, during one of the visions that the prophet Zechariah had, Joshua the high priest, the most moral of all the people of Israel, of God's people. These are not pagan nations, God's people. This is the high priest the one who's got it most together. And as he stands before God in this vision, he is depicted 
as wearing nothing but filthy garments. And we learn that those filthy garments, the word filthy literally means covered with dung, those represent our very best works. Zechariah 3.3 3 says, Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Of course, the angel who is speaking here is the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate form of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. He removes our filthy garments and he puts them on us. This is what we need. And the good news in our passage, as we read it, is that God is coming to us to do that very thing. Look at verse 6. It tells us the splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. He is coming to us in his sanctuary. Now, you know the word sanctuary. In the Old Testament, that was the tabernacle. It is the place where God dwells. If you're going to meet God, yes, he is everywhere, but if you're going to meet with him, have a personal relationship with him, interact with him, you have to go to the sanctuary. You have to go to the tabernacle. You have to go to the place where God is to be found and makes himself known. This is the place that he dwells. And when you would come to the sanctuary of God, you would see God in all his splendor and all his wonder and all his holiness. And you say, that's great. That was in the Old Testament. But what of us today? Where do we go to meet with God? Where does God dwell today? And the good news is that when Psalm 96 tells us that God is coming to us, he has done that, and he has done that in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is that sanctuary. Jesus is that tabernacle that comes to us. Jesus is the place where we go now in order to find God, because it is in him that God dwells. What was Jesus' nickname that the angel gave to him? His name was Jesus, God saves, but the nickname he was given, he shall be called Emmanuel. Matthew one twenty three, Emmanuel, which means God with us. God dwells in our midst. Jesus is that sanctuary that has come. And all the strength and beauty of his sanctuary in the Old Covenant are now outshone by the glory of Jesus as he comes. John 1.1, 1, 1, you know the words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word literally is, and he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, we're back to that glory. When Jesus comes, we see that glory that we are to ascribe to the Lord of Psalm 96. When Jesus comes, we have the sanctuary come to us. We no longer have to come to the sanctuary. It has come to us. God has come to dwell amongst men in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the hope of missions. The fact that God has come to us in Jesus and it is a blessing for missions because it's a blessing for all the world. In verse 7, it speaks about the families of the peoples. It's a very interesting phrase, and it's an allusion back to Genesis chapter 12, where God made a covenant with Abraham, and as he made that covenant, he said that through you, through your offspring, all the families of the, of the world would be blessed. Sometimes that's translated, all the nations will be blessed. But it's this phrase, all the families of the peoples, all the nations will be blessed through your offspring. And in Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that that offspring is, no surprise, 
What's the Sunday school answer? Jesus. Jesus then is the one who has come to us with all his glory and the majesty of God. It is in Jesus that we find God so we can dwell. And what's more, Jesus does the one thing we could not do. We cannot bring an offering of sufficient merit that permits us to stand before God and praise him. But Jesus does it for us. Jesus brings that offering that allows us to have a right standing before God as he offers himself up, dying on the cross in our place, paying the price that we owe God. In Ephesians 5.2, Paul says, Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He sacrificed himself, died the death that you and I deserve so that now we can have standing before God, so that now we can stand before him. As we invite the nations, we don't just simply tell them, come worship God. We have to tell them, come worship God. And even though you're not worthy as I was not worthy, come worship Jesus who is God, come in the flesh. And as he has come, he has made us able to stand and to worship because he has restored us to a right relationship with God through his sacrifice. And people of God, when you see that, then you realize this is a new song. Because the old order has changed. Before, you used to have to try to make it on your own. You have to used to try to bring your sacrifices. But now, Jesus does it for us. That's why in Revelation 5, 9, it says, And they, God's redeemed people, sang a new song, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. It's a new song that we're singing. It's not the old order anymore. God has come. And he's come in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings the offering that we can't bring. And because of him, because he is the Lamb that was slain, as we just read in Revelation 5.12, now he's the one who receives our praise. And we invite all the nations to come because this king whose glory and rule we just read about is spreading that glory and that rule indeed are spreading over all the earth jesus then is the hope of our mission and that is what gives us a reason to rejoice a reason to rejoice verse 11 let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice let the sea roar and all that fills it let the field exult in everything in it then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy That's the end result of missions, which takes us to our last point. What is the result of missions? It is joy. Because as we invite the nations to come, as they enter into the worship of God, that brings joy into their lives. And the reason for it is because the rule of God is going out. And as the rule of the kingdom of God goes out, it does something very important. It starts in our hearts, and it continues on in the hearts of people what it does is that it displaces, it pushes aside everything that is false. And all the false idols and gods are toppled. In verse 4 we read, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Look at that language in verse 5. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. That is a word that literally means, we translate it here as 
worthless, but literally means nothingness, emptiness. But the Lord made the heavens. That's a strange thing you might say. Why does he say that? Because this is the true God, the one who created all things. Everything else that we put our trust in is just like vapor, like smoke that just vanishes. It offers you a promise and then has nothing to fulfill that promise with. Now today we don't make worthless idols of metal and wood and gold, but we have many worthless ideas and values to which we cling. And Derek Kidner, an English Old Testament scholar, one of my favorites, wrote in his commentary on this, he said, the psalmist's challenge to the accepted ideas of the day invites us to be equally unimpressed by currently revered nonsense whatever its pedigree or patronage. People of God, we may not have little metal idols anymore, but we have plenty of currently revered nonsense. Things that we elevate, things that we put our trust in. Culturally, I can think of some big ones right now. They are the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, and every, spirit, every age has its theme and its things that it holds on to. Things like critical race theory. Things like uh, the new mores on sexuality that seem to, that want to separate how God created you from what you feel you are. Things like all this transgender identity and so on. It is nonsense. I don't, maybe you didn't get the memo, so let me just make it clear this morning. If you put on a dress, men, and put on some lipstick and declare to the world that you're a woman, that in no way means that you are. It does not give you the intuition, the mindset, the experience of what it means to be a woman with all the joys and all the challenges that come with that. You can pretend, but you'll never get anywhere close. It is nonsense. It is foolishness of the highest order. It suffuses our culture. And this passage tells us that when the gospel comes forward and it takes things like that, takes things like critical race theory, takes things like the overreactions and the ways that we've responded to the pandemic, not that the pandemic isn't real, not that it doesn't hurt people and even kill people, but some of the things that we've seen that have just been attempts to control, all these things are nonsense. And when the gospel comes, it sweeps them aside. Have you ever noticed that as the gospel went out in church history, the nations that truly came under the effect of Christ became more stable. Civility and all sorts of good things started. We can see it. We think of Geneva where Calvin was at, right? Switzerland. And when uh, John Knox went there in exile, he had run out of Scotland by Queen Mary. He said that this was the most excellent school of Christ ever. Calvin had been there for many years at that point. He and other pastors and the gospel had been greatly at work and God had blessed it and had transformed Geneva because if you were to look at it in the previous century, it was utterly, utterly a wasteland of morality. Prostitution, murder, drugs, all this was rampant everywhere. It was a nation, the whole of Switzerland, and it was a city that was turned around by the gospel. And we saw that. 
Not just there, but in so many other places. Schools, hospitals begin to be built as people begin to care for one another. The way of discourse changes. As we see in the West today, the gospel declining. What do we see? A rise in incivility. A rise in violence. A rise in the breakdown of the families. You see, as we cling, we we are worshipers by heart, so we begin to cling to other things to worship if we don't worship the true God as he's revealed in Christ. We we cling to whatever is currently revered. And these things are nothing, it tells us. As we hold on to them, they promise us so much. Don't we hear those promises all the time? All these new theories, all these new beliefs, they're going to revolutionize our society and all they end up doing is bringing us into greater, greater bondage. But the gospel frees God's people. It frees this world. And so that's why we rejoice. That's why the result of missions is joy. Because those who are in bondage are freed up. That's why you can see in verse 10, it says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. The good news is that while all sorts of other empires, including the American empire, will rise and fall, Jesus' reign is permanent and it's fixed and it's perfect and there's no chance that its blessing will ever be removed. And as that blessing goes forward, it leads us to joy because the day of the Lord has come. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy uh, before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So that's the grand result of mission. As we see the coming of Jesus Christ and his rule spreading, we see that we can finally be ourselves. And that obstacle of sin and all the foolish ideas and idols that come from our sinfulness get stripped away. Our self-centeredness becomes God-centeredness and that brings true joy. So as we walk away from this wonderful psalm, what have we seen? We've seen that the motive for missions is nothing other than the glory of God, which is for our own good. We want others to share in that glory. That's what motivates us. And the hope of missions is Jesus Christ because he is the only one who can make all things new, including our own hearts, so that we can come and stand before God and worship him. But the fact that we can do that because of his grace gives us the result of missions, which is joy. And not just our joy locally, but worldwide joy as the gospel goes forward and displaces all that is wrong and wicked in this world. And so, people of God, as we come to the end, I ask you this question. Does your heart beat with God's heart? Because when we read this psalm, we are reminded that God's heart is a missionary heart. God's desire is to reach out to the peoples and to draw them to himself. God's chief purpose is his own glory and his chief concern is making that glory known. And so I ask you, do you share God's purpose? Is God's chief concern your chief concern? If not, then I invite you to look in, look in your own hearts and to see whether perhaps your lack of passion for evangelism and the gospel really reflects a lack of passion for God and for his glory. Are we indeed doing what verse 3 says? Are we declaring his glory among the nations? Now, one easy way, of course, to do that that we all think of is you become a missionary and you travel across the seas 
And certainly that is one way of doing it. But there are so many other ways that we can declare God's glory right here, right now. This is a task for all of God's people. As you interact with your family and with your friends and with your neighbors. As you interact with your co-workers or your classmates. As we take on things like reaching out to the mosque next door or the school across the street. As we've done in the past here in our church and hope to do once again in starting yet another Spanish-speaking church and reaching out to that community. We can do things right here because God's heart is a missionary heart. And we need to share with people that they have a great need to be liberated so they can know the joy and love and glory of God. Is your heart beating with God's heart? Let's declare His glory among the nations. May He equip us and enable us to do that very thing. Let's pray.